Bells are ringing on my phone in the middle of the night. I'm lost and I have trouble finding the floor. Two days ago, I left the house for the first time in two years, took a taxi to a Moscow airport, changed planes in Turkey, and got to Tbilisi, Georgia at 2 a.m. The next day, my wife's cousin, Irakli, takes me to get vaccinated, something that should have happened over a year ago. We walk into the clinic, documents in hand, and 30 minutes later, I've gotten my first Pfizer shot, and this wave of calm wraps around me. Everything is going to start to be okay now. I take a picture of the stern-faced statue outside the clinic. Arakli takes me to eat big, messy cheeseburgers, and we talk about life and our children. Waiting for the side effects to kick in, my shoulder sore, I went to sleep that night. And then I understand something has happened. Chris has written something to me, but I can't even read the phone. My eyes are so bleary. And Dave, who I know from the Mars bar, he sends something too. I see a link, but I cannot even think to read it. So I drift back to sleep, convinced the morning light will put all of this in its place. A motorcycle roars by as the sun is just coming up. A giant balloon sits in a perfect blue sky, pulled up and down by the longest ropes. I go to read the messages, now feeling a bit more human, and see the obituary in the New York Post. The floor disappears. I think it must be for someone else, and Molly is just mentioned in it. But no, it's about her. And so I sit in another foreign room, thousands of miles from New York, learning that another old friend has been taken far too soon. I think of last year and Felix. That sense of anger and fear and loss, that utter loneliness, that numbness in my fingers and feet, suddenly hearing my own breathing as the air goes in and out by some miracle. It's afternoon in Tbilisi by the time it's morning in the States. I write to Mike and Chris. We struggle for any words, just trying to say something, anything, really. The one thing that feels good is having them reply. This is what sets the world a tiny bit more on its axis. Everything else throws it farther off course. I'm Marco, and this is Songbird. Welcome to episode six of this new season. And thank you for being patient. I'm trying to get these out on a weekly basis, or as close to that as I can. I've been hearing from a number of old acquaintances and some people I've never met with great stories about Molly and Spitball. It's so wonderful to hear back. So please don't be shy. Don't be a stranger. Each episode is a message in a bottle that I throw out into the world, and finding out who hears it and what it sparks in them 
is the greatest reward for all of this hard work. There's a contact form right on the website. This time, we're talking about another spitball cover song, Use Me, by Bill Withers. So I'm with Mike and Chris at the same time. Woo-hoo, the rhythm section. <laughs> we used to be the Fab Four. Mm-hmm. Now I guess are we the Three Musketeers or are we the Three Stooges? <laughs> Stooges, baby. Yeah, I would go for Stooges as well. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take off my tights and my sword, and uh, I'll make that for that's a different day. <laughs> So it's been a month since Molly passed, and it sinks in on a daily basis, on a very strange basis. I know that she would want us to be goofing around and not be morose about stuff. So I I guess let's just do our best to be idiots if we're capable. Generally pretty easy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Nothing's changed since the 90s, Marco. So here's my first mistake. I'm completely wrong. This episode is not about Use Me Up, the Bill Withers song. It's Use Me, <laughs> the oh, Bill Withers yeah. song. Right, right? Yeah. We always had it written everywhere on set list and everything is Use Me Up. Yeah, sure did. So this is the only other cover that is in any of our recordings. So Sunshine Superman and now Use Me. These all happened before I joined the band. Paint me a little picture of how did you decide to do this song? Go web. Yeah, Talk right. about using <laughs> So Chris and I used to hang out at this bar called Jay Cox Cole in the East Village. And there was a bartender there named, I think, Sylvia? Sylvie? Sylvia, I think. And she was very attractive, and she was always nice to us. And Jay Cox Cole had a happy hour at 1 a.m. So by the time Chris and I made it there, we were pretty lit. It was brutal <laughs> because there were also times where we'd get there at a reasonable hour, and then we'd be like, you know, we got to work the next day. And we were walking out the door, and the happy hour bell rang at 1 a.m. And we just looked at each other. Well, hey, we're obligated. Let's go sit there. Exactly. Hour. Come on. Just go right back to your seats and sit down. And it's two for one drink, so you're there for two drinks, you know? Yep. Anyway, we had kind of a crush on Sylvia, so we're talking music with her one day. We wanted her to come see the band, and she never did. No, she didn't. But she did tell us, you know, I like that Bill Withers song, Use Me. And we were like, oh, okay, yeah, we're going to cover that, and that's why you're going to come out and see us. Okay, so be fully honest. Did you really know the song, or did you just say, sure? I'm a brother, man, so I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't know it at all. No, not in the least. But we really, really wanted her to come out. And I kind of remember as she was a little exasperated and kind of like, give me a break, you guys. All right, learn, use me, and I'll come see you. Yeah, I think that's right. (laughs) So Chris is guilty of fake it till you make it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that song. I know that (laughs) song. That's a great one. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I think the I think the verse is in G. Yeah. Yeah, that's what the drummer would say. Yeah. Right. So this is great. You brought this to Molly and I'm guessing Molly absolutely knew the song. No, she absolutely did not know the song. Whoa. I thought she knew everything. <laughs> Here's the trick though. I didn't have a CD of it. 
and we didn't have it on tape and you know we weren't living in a digital world then so the only version i had and i'm so horrified to admit this was lenny kravitz cover version of it <laughs> oh my <laughs> that's just a stooge move right there right right, right. totally so i gave that to molly and the only part that really stuck with her was that da 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 you know, part. So that's what she used. And then when we got together, we still didn't really know the song other than that riff. No. So Molly played it and we recreated it, which is based on that. is a true Frankenstein version of that song. I think about 70% of the lyrics are not used. Yeah. Or really badly forgotten and remembered. It's sort of like if you forgot all the words and you tried to sing them. And Molly did say this to me with Sunshine Superman. She said, I can't remember the words, so sometimes I just made them up. Yeah. <laughs> right. She wasn't trying to fool anybody with yeah. it. This was her comfort zone. And okay, I feel like Bill Withers would be pissed off because the lyrics are awesome. <laughs> right. But you know what's interesting? So a lot of people say that this is a song about sex, and a lot of people argue that it's a song about friendship. Mm. And, you know, obviously nobody knows. I thought it was very interesting what Molly improvised on it was really like coming from her own experiences. And she was really grafting her own life moments, or that's my guess. You know, where do you come up with this stuff? If you're not singing the words and you sing other words, are you singing about yourself? I don't know. Am I nuts? I don't think so. You know, in thinking almost just in general of how to do a cover, what an awesome way to make it your own to take the idea of the song and maybe kind of the emotional feel of it and then take who you are and what you're experiencing and put that into it and those words. I mean, that's kind of how I've always felt about Molly in general was that she was, you know, such her own thing that it was easy for her to do that. It's like she so much had her own style and her own way of phrasing and singing and everything that I guarantee she listened to it once and was like, okay, I'm taking this and this and this, the good stuff and the rest of it, I'm just going to do with this is me, which is, you know, I guess it depends what you want to hear from a band doing a cover. Talk about the way to make it your own. That's, it's amazing. And the fact that we just didn't know yeah. gave us the room to make it a song in our own yeah. way. But that's really interesting, Marco. I, I really didn't think about Molly's experience with the song. It's really this intimate betrayal of, it's vague if it's a lover or a friend, and maybe both, yeah. and how you're saying you hurt me and this is what you do to me. Yeah, That's an interesting place to go to. And I felt that her singing of it turned it from what it is in the Bill Withers song to almost a swaggering kind of thing. Like, oh yeah, well here. Yeah, you know? totally. Mm -hmm. All right, well, this is automatically swing. So well, wait, I I'm sorry. I just fact-checked myself, and it's actually a Mick Jagger song featuring Lenny Kravitz. Oh, boy. So it's hey, even okay. worse. It's even worse. <laughs> oh, it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, arranged by Lawrence Well. <laughs> Thank you. 
So I knew I needed to dedicate a solid episode of this season to rhythm section. And I mean, I, I feel like I'm psychic because I didn't know that the two of you wanted to do the song. I mean, obviously every song you guys are doing something solid, but I was like, no, this is the song above all else that is without the rhythm section, this icing on the cake of what Molly and I were doing would have been, you know, like uh, on quicksand. Right. So can I get credit for being psychic <laughs> that you guys, you know, caused this <laughs> discover to happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, exactly. I really want to talk like musician stuff now. Oh, well, why am I on the podcast then? Yeah, right? <laughs> All right, well, let us know when you need some. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, I'll tell you when one shows up. Right, right, right. What do you think makes a good rhythm section? And what do you think makes a bad rhythm section? What I mean is, what are the ingredients that somehow make it work? Or what are the ingredients that make it fail? Because I'm imagining that the two of you have played in other rhythm sections that didn't work. Not to diminish what the bass player or the drummer do. You've got to understand your place in the band. And you've got to embrace that. You've got to not want to be the front person. I always thought of it as like the engine room. You have to be the ones laying it down and pushing it for the guys out front to do their thing. I feel like Webb and I had that. There was so much more than just playing in a band together. It was spending so much time in bars and laughing and have a great time. But I have played in bands with a bass player who maybe didn't know that and wanted to be a little more lead. At least as far as, you know, how I played and how I look at rhythm, it didn't really work. Just something kind of wonderful and beautiful about laying it down and working towards like a common goal with the two guys in the front and letting them do their thing and seeing it all work. Chris, you said it so, so well, because, you know, I'm a guitar player. That's how I've yeah. always thought of myself. And I remember after Spitball broke up the first time, when we got back the second time, I was like, we're going to do my songs and yada, yada, yada. Right. That didn't happen. And thank God, because Molly's songs were better. But B, at some point, I made that exact transition. And I'm going to be a fucking badass bass player. Right on. And I got a badass drummer. It was just so easy. So, Marco, when you ask us to talk about it, it's like, it was almost seamless. And I'll just add this to what Chris said. All the hanging out, when Chris and I are in bars at 1 a.m., we're talking music 90% of the time. Yeah. So we had this overlap in music taste. But we also had differences, and I think that's a big part of what made us unique. I, you know, I don't say I'm a musician, I say I'm a drummer, which I think is a different thing. So much of kind of getting your own thing going and getting your own style of playing is all the different things coming at you that you listen to. And just specifically with Use Me Up. Use Me. Use Me, Use yes. Me. <laughs> I remember that I was sick for four days. I don't remember what it was, but I just was in my apartment miserable. And it just so happened to coincide with Web lending me star time. Oh, wow. That four CD set. And... Growing up, for me, I never had any exposure to anything like that. It's like that or the P-Funk stuff. No clue whatsoever. And I remember Webb gave that to me, and I spent those four days really kind of fever and just seriously messed up. Just so getting into that and realizing that that was kind of starting to rearrange my musical worldview of how I thought. You've got reggae, you've got rock and roll, you've got you know swing and jazz and everything, and then you've got James Brown. It's his own genre. He invented it. That's it. 
And being exposed to that and getting into that style of music and that kind of drumming and that kind of groove and rhythm was just a completely different thing for me. And it was around the time of Use Me and also learning, you know, you don't have to play super fast. Mm -hmm. The most important thing is hitting the groove and getting in the pocket. And I feel like we tried really hard to do that on Use Me and most of the time we really hit it. And it's a smooth, nasty groove in the verse. Yeah, James Brown is not fast. Mm -mm, Yeah, mm -mm. right. But Chris, were you in a cold sweat? Yeah. (laughs) Cold sweat. Yeah, right, right, right. Thank God nobody got fined for missing notes in spitball. Oh, right. Oh, man. You know, the other thing about Use Me is, and I really don't know how it came about. I think it was just us. For the bass, there's a rest. Mm -hmm. Ba-doom, ba-boom, boom. And I don't know what it does, but it kind of gives it some room. And I feel like that kind of gives it a little bit of the funk that it's got. Oh, it's a total bounce. It's like when you're in the air and then you're coming back on the trampoline. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, you know, um, (sighs) I hate to admit this, but I love Fleetwood Mac's rhythm section. Oh, yeah. Those guys are just so intertwined and they're one. And yes. that's an example of a rhythm section that really works. And they're the foundation, and everybody else in that band could build anything on top. Totally. I agree 100% with you. You you almost can't separate the drums and the bass in that band. Mm-hmm. They're so locked in, they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah? You, you guys are going to make Molly like come back from I having know. to like, I know. spray paint stuff on the outside of your house. Right. Fleetwood Mac sucks. Right, right, right. <laughs> totally. But they're a great rhythm section. And, you know, we're not the Stones or Zeppelin. Like, you know, obviously those are amazing drummers. And yeah, here's something I know. When Charlie Watts died, I started listening to tons of Stones, right? And I realized my favorite Stone songs are songs that Keith starts. So Keith is the mm-hmm. one that's setting the tempo and Charlie's falling in on him. And everybody always, you know, it's, it's all about Charlie. It's all about Charlie. Well, Charlie had a good guitar player to work with. So during December, everyone was watching this fucking Beatles documentary. How long was it? Like 300 hours, 400 (laughs) hours? You know, we had to watch it so that we could have an opinion about it because we're New Yorkers. We don't just take someone else's opinion. We grind through the whole freaking thing. I'm very curious to get your take on it. Some of the immediate reactions I had were, yes, I've always hated Paul. Now I know why. I could never be in a band with an asshole like him. Oh, you guys were late? I already recorded the drums and I did everything. Um, I mean, if you want to play something, okay. I mean, who could be in a band with that guy? Second, they've, <laughs> we knew that they were goofy, but they spent like 92% of their time fucking around. <laughs> yes. And third... And we watched it. <laughs> yes, yes. And we had to watch them, you know, freaking... Put a mustache on the Mona Lisa 400 million times. Mm-hmm. But I always thought that Ringo was a freaking goofball. And I was very happy to find out he was the most mature. He was on time. And, you know, I never gave him credit. 
okay, I'm never going to say he's a bad drummer. It's impossible. But I didn't appreciate certain things about his drumming, especially hearing them in rehearsal. Him, like, holding it together. Because, you know, bass player was, like, off on a tangent. Sometimes John played that six-string bass. Like, he had two bass players to goof around with. And I was too hard on Ringo. He, I, I should really be giving him more respect. So while we're making the story of our fab foursome, everyone else is watching the story about this other, you know, remotely more famous fab foursome. And I'm just looking at the dynamic of these four people saying, of course they freaking broke up. Of course they could not stay in a room and deal with each other for X amount of time. It was in the cards and they were always on the edge of falling apart. And maybe it was just a matter of time. I don't know, Marco. Um, you're right about Ringo always being there. And I, I think part of his brilliance is he's a left-handed drummer. Mm. Who He's left-handed, but he plays right. But the, the thing that stood out to me in watching the Beatles, and I don't know why we're talking about the Beatles and Spitball, but we are. <laughs> Fab four. Fab four. <laughs> is George Harrison is the most underrated person in that band. Because yeah. when he left, all the work stopped. And then what he kind of got them to do was leave Twickingham. They went to the basement. He was instrumental in helping Glenn Johns get the equipment that they needed. When you listen to Get Back and them talking about it, he's the guy that's like, it needs to resolve. It needs that da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, he's the one that brought that, and he gets no credit for it. And then the, the flip side is, I always feel like McCartney really helped George songs get better. He was kind of there for him. He might have been annoying as hell. Chris, did you watch? I didn't. I didn't think so. <laughs> I've seen parts of it. I know my drummer. <laughs> <laughs> I've been encouraged to watch it by many friends. I would like to see it. I love Ringo. I, I don't think he gets nearly as much credit as he deserves. Super pocket guy, you know, holding it down. But also, when it fits, he's super creative. I mean, listen to Stun King off of Abbey Road and Tomorrow Never Knows. I mean, that's some really completely not bass snare, bass snare, hi-hat kind of thing. He always stepped up to the creativity that was happening in that band. I got to tell you this story. In the early days of Spitball, Molly and I were walking around near Beth Israel Hospital. And Molly goes, Spitball's going to be bigger than the Beatles. And I looked at her and I'm like, what? <laughs> You're crazy. And she's like, no, man, we got this magic. We got this thing. That was her commitment to the band and her belief in like how good we were. It's a Bill Withers song called Use Me Up.
do is use me Well, I got one thing to say about all of this Use me stuff If it feels this good I used to joke with Molly, we used to always say, who's Lennon, who's McCartney? Or we can argue, who's Strummer and who's Jones? But the problem is, we all think we're Lennon, and we all think we're Strummer. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So tell me I'm not. Yeah. And I know that you're thinking the exact same thing. And she's like, 
then we can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Do you think if the two of you were not such good friends, Spitball would have been a much lesser band? Probably. Our friendship definitely tied us together. And when you have that bad rehearsal, Chris and I are going to the bar and like, rats and frats and I can't fucking believe her. Right. We had that vent. And we're also kind of checking each other like, am I just being an asshole or was that that problematic? And and that was good for us. Well, just two things. In the band, we're playing as one unit. And for the most part, any drama that was happening or anything... You know, Webb and I would pretty much be on the same page about what was going on. There was so much hanging out. We became such good friends. And, you know, we also spent a lot of time doing the band stuff together, going up to Sony and doing all those flyers and running off tapes and doing all the mailing through there. And so much of, you know, a lot of the the great band memories I have is just getting loaded up at Sony and doing mailings (laughs) and making flyers. (laughs) We were up there when the OJ chase was happening. We were up there making flyers. Yeah, watching the SUV in California. (laughs) I basically spent a lot of time around any bartender who gave me free drinks. Mm -hmm. And that was either Tracy or Molly. (laughs) And I definitely spent a lot of quality time on the other side of a bar with all kinds of pretty interesting people. Do you remember Luscious Jackson? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were hanging out in Baby Jake's with us, and Molly just kept giving them free drinks so they wouldn't leave. <laughs> and, you know, it was this sort of aggressive, calculated, and I don't mean this in a bad way, she really wanted them to come to our shows. So we needed to make an impression on them so that they would say, you guys are really cool. Yeah, I'll come see you play. And I really remember, like, trying to entertain them. And we were definitely, like, partners in crime. I don't want to say it's like a, something we were guilty of because it's it's not shitty to try to promote yourself and see an opportunity no. but we were brutal with our, like we are so fun come over and see the <laughs> band you girls who just got signed and daniel ny is producing your album right right, right. yeah you need to come see us <laughs> right you'll be a better person if you just come hear us please 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 you have to do that in the band and i will say molly was relentless she believed in us in a way that i didn't always and so i admire that relentless is a good word i mean she put everything all the time into moving the band forward everything i remember we were talking once and you know you do all this work to get people to shows and some people don't come out and then you see them afterwards and they're like oh you know sorry i didn't come and molly was kind of the one to put the spin on it basically give them the impression that it was their loss Mm -hmm. not like oh that's okay but more like yeah it was fucking awesome you missed out. I'll tell you this. In the later days of Spitball, I did become a believer. And I remember we had just finished the demo with Night Bob. And I worked at Columbia Records. And I'm riding up the elevator with the president of Columbia Records, Don Einer. And I've got the tape in my pocket. And I'm like, dude, if you're ever going to do this, this is the moment. So I'm like, hey, Donnie, uh, this is my band. Would love for you to check it out. Gave it to him. The next day, Donnie had asked a couple of the A&R guys, have you heard Mike's band? Uh, And so a couple came up and were like, hey, can I get a demo? And I was like, oh, so Donnie didn't listen, but he's having you stooges listen. (laughs) And what happened? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Columbia Records did not like spitball. 
I had one guy tell me, you need to choose a lane. He's like, you're all over the place. And I'm like, the clash, anybody? Hello? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. One guy didn't like Molly's vocals, which whatever. My boss, who I adore, he never gave me any feedback. And I think it's because he didn't like it and didn't know how to tell me. Right. But you know what, Mike? Respect for giving it to the dude in the elevator. I had to. Yeah. I dare say that's a musketeer move, not a Three Stooges move. And that was the thing, to always make sure that you had a cassette on you at all times. Yeah, yeah. Because you never knew who you were going to... I never had a cassette on me. It didn't even enter my mind. That's because you're hanging out at Baby Jake's and and Molly's probably got a bunch of them behind the counter. Right, behind the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let you get me down. Chris? Yes, sir. How do you deal with drummer jokes? I I totally embrace that. Being a drummer is always 110%. It's never any middle. You know, at this point in my life, it's just who I am. And I think that a lot of the drummer jokes kind of revolve around that. And I think they're hilarious. That's kind of uh, along the same lines of, I don't know, I don't think I'm a musician. I'm a drummer. It's very different. (laughs) (laughs) What do you call the guys who hang around musicians? That's right. Drummers. Drummers. Actually, where where do you hide your money when a drummer's in your house? (laughs) Under the soap. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what's the last thing the drummer said to the band before he got fired? Hey, guys, I have a song. (laughs) (laughs) So why are there drummer jokes and not bass player jokes? Oh, there's bass player jokes. There better not be. And they're not funny. There are drummers and bass players who play solos and all this stuff, but you got to take that off the table. Is there any glory in being just a total bread and butter drummer or bass player? I think so. Yeah. I I, I mean, yeah, I think it's about embracing your role and, you know, playing the song. I love hearing rhythm sections that are just cooking and laying back and laying it down and being the base for what else is happening. You know, my dad was a big band jazz guy, and he was just really always loving the whole groove thing. And he gave me a recording once of the Barrel House Jazz Band. And um, it's just your basic blues groove. They go through the verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's kind of the instrumental and the piano player is going. And upright bass and the drummer is just playing with brushes. They just so ferociously have it down, which lets the piano player do his thing. And you hear the other guys yelling at him, pushing him on, like, don't stop now, man. Keep going. Keep going, man. (laughs) And it's like having the rhythm section there allows people to do that stuff. And that's magic. Complete magic. And Mark, I would say it kind of depends on what you mean by glory. Well, let me ask you the question again. The best thing a bread and butter bass player or drummers can hear at the end of a gig was, you guys were really pretty good. Like, is that enough? Is that satisfying? Oh, yeah. I love playing, and I love playing with Chris. I could start to zone out, but I could always hear in Chris's playing, okay, here's the turn. (laughs) (laughs) I always knew where to go just because all you got to do is listen to Chris. So for me, that's definitely enough. 
I get to do something I love. And because I got a great drummer and I'm in this band that's got these great songs and great guitar player, great sax player. What's better than that? I got to work on Westway to the World a little bit Mm. when I was at Sony. I'm thinking of that Joe Strummer quote. I'm sure I'll say it wrong and I will never try to do the Joe Strummer accent. But he's basically like, the drummer's got to be like nails going in a coffin. (laughs) And if your drummer's a junkie, not happening. (laughs) Got a point. Somebody said somewhere, I think it was a drummer, if people notice the drums and the bass, then you're not doing your job right. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty right on. I've had a theory. There's no great rock and roll band that has a mediocre drummer. Some artists are so visible. The lead singer, the starring actor, the girl on the flying trapeze. But what about the costumer, the makeup artist, the arranger? How many of the credits do you read after you watch a great film? Does it really matter who the key grip was? Well, of course it does. We all want that tiny reward, that jolt, when you see your name in the credits, the liner notes, the article, or the review. But we don't do it for the bragging rights. They're just a signpost, a handful of letters. This person did this, and don't you forget it. All right, songbirds, this is the place where I tell people where they can find us. We're on all your favorite podcasting platforms, and even ones I bet you've never even heard of. Or you can just go to songbirdpodcast.com. That's the only place you can find the show notes. I'll put Use Me by Bill Withers, of course. And don't forget, there's a contact form, so please reach out to us. I want to know what you're thinking. If you're interested in the music I make, Just search for Martin Ruby, that's the band name, on Bandcamp, Spotify, iTunes, and the rest, or just go to martinruby.com. Sisyphus, the first single from my new album, Jacob and the Angel, is out now, and it's been picked up by some great playlists, and the full album drops on February 18th. Next time on Songbird, a welding jacket, the Continental, and a big announcement. Thanks for listening. Songbird is produced by Bittersweet Content.